0: Hello, I'm Olivia Lynch, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rob Sneckenberg. Today, we're excited to welcome our first ever podcast guest, external to and mooring, Adele Navarette. Adele has over 10 years combined experience in law firm and in-house practice with a focus on government contracts. She serves as senior corporate counsel for LMI, which has almost 60 years experience providing government management consulting, helping the federal government solve its toughest problems. Adele received her law degree from University of Michigan Law School. So today we're going to be discussing organizational conflicts of interest, um, which Adele is well-situated to provide the in-house perspective on. So, Rob, do you want to take it away with discussing unequal access
1: OCIs? Sure. Thanks, Olivia. Yeah, and we'll we'll provide a brief background on the various types of OCIs and then uh, turn it to Adele for her perspectives. But to start, an unequal access to information OCI arises where a company, through performing one government contract, Gains access to non public information that may be competitively useful in obtaining another government contract. For example, if the company on its first contract has access to non public details about the agency's source selection plan, or about requirements, or about uh, competitor pricing or proposal information, that would be non public and potentially give it an advantage, or in this case, an unfair advantage, in another competition. So, Adele. How do you address this, and what types of mitigation measures do you find effective when you're faced with uh, unequal access OCIs?
2: When you have an unequal access OCI, you're usually separating some individuals in your organization with access to sensitive information from another part of your organization submitting a proposal without using or accessing that sensitive information you want to document this separation and protection of sensitive information in a formal way so it could be reviewed later even by the government that's your oci plan your oci mitigation plan is simply the steps you take to protect the sensitive information i personally like a bottom line upfront approach i like to be able to pick up an oci plan and understand in the first couple paragraphs what are we mitigating how why and who at the simplest terms who can't talk to whom about what The individuals with access to sensitive information should sign an NDA agreeing not to share that information with anyone else in the organization. If another part of your organization is submitting a proposal that could arguably benefit from that sensitive information, you might want them to sign an acknowledgement that they understand the individuals have been firewalled so they do not even innocently elicit information from them. And then there are other measures that you should put into place because people are busy. And we need reminders. And these are pretty easy lifts. You can leverage IT systems. You can restrict access to LAN or SharePoint files to the minimum people necessary. And then there are physical measures. You can have controlled closed door meetings. You can even put a sign on the door of the proposal room stating what proposal is being worked on and even list the names of firewalled individuals who shouldn't enter. Also, it's important to be mindful of financial incentives Make sure one group is in no way incentivized by the other group financially. For instance, it would not be a good idea if the individuals with access to the sensitive information had like their bonus tied to the capture team winning the proposal. So you do all those things, you document you've done them, and you make sure your OCI plan is ready for prime time. You might be required to submit your OCI mitigation plan to the government if required by a contract or the RFP for whatever you're bidding on, or if the government just requests it. But at a minimum, you should maintain the plan and signed artifacts with your contract filed because you might need them later, maybe like in a bid protest to show contemporaneous mitigation measures were in effect. So Rob, those are the mitigation measures in your toolbox, but there is a mitigation measure that the government has, which is to turn unequal information into equal information. The government can release competition-sensitive information to all offerors, and sometimes does. Like if one offeror had access to the independent government cost estimate, the government could just share the IGCE with all offerors. That would level the playing field for everyone and eliminate the OCI. Equal access means no unequal access,
1: so no OCI. Thanks, Adele. So those are great points about a lot of different mitigation measures that one can take. And I really just want to harp on on one of the first things that you said there, which was when you have your plan, of course, you want to document it, but you want to define up front, what is the concern? What are you addressing? You know, we see OCI plans from different companies at times and, you know, it'll just run right into these are the things we're doing and we have to say hold up you know tell us wait what is the concern because when people understand the concern in the first instance it helps them to better understand and better address how the mitigation measures are designed to address it and uh, better understand how to follow those measures because you know in any given circumstance there's you know these are all great things to put in the plan OCI's, though, are so fact specific, it's going to come down to what are you defining, what are you addressing, and in different circumstances, different mitigation measures will be more appropriate uh, than others, but definitely great to have redundancies and other ideas there. Totally agree. Now, you, you also mentioned, um, you know, different steps the government can take to level the playing field. Now, one thing that we frequently hear is there's a circumstance where the playing field cannot possibly be leveled, and that's when you have an incumbent contractor. You know, we hear it time and again, you know, doesn't the, uh, doesn't the incumbent contractor have an unequal access to information OCI simply because they have... All that incumbent knowledge of the program and the requirements, you know, how do you think about the incumbent contractor issue and how do you address it? Oh, I've heard that argument too. Um,
2: it's definitely not a winning argument. I mean, if the rule were you had to firewall off every group of incumbent employees from the recompete proposal, it would be much harder to win recompetes. And we know that just isn't the case. And GAO recognizes natural advantages of incumbency. It's made clear that incumbency is not in and of itself an OCI. I mean, if I had to create OCI plans for every single contract where we go after re-compete, it would be a full-time job. That would make me so unhappy. I mean, I love OCI plans as much as any other GovCon lawyer, but everything in moderation. You
1: know, they may be more likely uh, to give rise to certain concerns because there is that additional knowledge, but there, you know, as as you said, and GAO has, has documented it, the, na- the quote-unquote natural advantages of incumbency um, do not create an OCI. So, great discussion. Appreciate that perspective. Why don't we kick it over to Olivia to walk through biased ground rules?
0: A biased ground rules OCI arises where a firm, as part of its performance of a government contract, has in some sense set the ground rules for the competition for another government contract and then tries to compete for that contract. You know, This this often arises where you you've got a contractor helping to write the statement of work or providing materials upon which the statement of work was based. Um, And and the primary concern from the government's perspective is that the firm involved in setting the ground rules could skew the competition, whether intentionally or not, in favor of itself. So Adele, what types of best practices would you recommend to avoid a biased ground rules OCI challenge? In my day-to-day experience, the biased ground rules OCI scenario that I look out for the most is the
2: one where, as part of our contract, we're assisting with an acquisition, like for example, writing a statement of work. So my general advice is don't bid on acquisition work unless you're sure you don't want to bid on any work coming out of that office. It just makes life easy for yourself and in picking a side, and you'll never have a biased ground rules, OCI, if you never bid on anything that comes out of that acquisition office. And it may be abundantly clear. You can't bid on an RFP that comes out of the acquisition shop because your name may be listed on the actual RFP as a contractor precluded from bidding. But life happens. I get it. Let's say you picked the acquisition side, but you find out that an opportunity you have been tracking is going to come out of an acquisition office that you are supporting. What can you do? Well, if you've got a good customer relationship, you can ask your customer to let you not help with that one acquisition, to let you sit one out. If you are permitted to recuse yourself, it should be documented, ideally in an email from the government confirming you're recusing so that there are no questions later. one last word on bias ground rules sometimes acquisition work just sneaks in when you're not expecting it so in an ideal world your oci compliance program which we'll talk about in a minute is so robust that pms instruct employees on any project to raise their hands if ever asked by the government to do acquisition work so you can catch a bias ground rules oci before it ever occurs
0: yeah that that's all great advice um because the the main way that gao has recognized that agencies can um, mitigate a bias ground rules OCI is to have the procuring agency employ more than one contractor as a source of recommendations and input for, um, you know, shaping, shaping the requirements or setting the ground rules. And you don't see a lot of agencies that are willing to do that at the back end, just to let another contractor, um, bid on, on the work down the line. So great advice. Right. Um, And so, Rob, why don't you close us out with discussion of impaired objectivity OCI's?
1: Sure, Olivia. An impaired objectivity OCI arises where a company under one contract will be in a position to evaluate its performance under another contract. For example, this could be a a clear evaluation circumstance where the one contract expressly monitors performance under another contract. You could uh, sense the potential conflict of interest there. You know, alternatively, another example would be if a contractor say had a contract to uh, perform budgetary audits uh, for an agency, and if those budgetary audits included uh, particular contracts that were performed for the agency, you know, the concern there is that the contractor under its auditing function might not provide as uh, open and honest and transparent of an evaluation of its own performance and of say its own cost control under its contracts. So that's the type of things that we're concerned about when we talk about impaired objectivity OCIs. Um, and these are a little bit trickier. So Adele, why don't you help us to understand them? What do you and your capture teams look for in a solicitation to assess whether there might be impaired objectivity concerns?
2: Yeah, they, they are tricky, Rob. Um, you got to read the statement of work closely and watch for the types of tasks where the government wants objective unimpaired advice like evaluating contractors performance or independent verification and validation, also known as iv and V work. And when you see tasks like that, ask yourself if you're able to provide objective support on those tasks. Or is there some reason you may not be able to be objective? For example, does the PWS require you to you to evaluate the performance of a company who also happens to be your prime contractor on another program? Can you really objectively evaluate someone who pays your bills? That's what the impaired objectivity OCI is all about.
1: So let's take this one step further. If you identify a, an actual or potential impaired objectivity concern, you know, how do you address that? I think it is
2: possible to address through outsourcing, uh, but it's difficult to thread that needle. Let's say you're a prime contractor and you outsource some work to a subcontractor you think can be more objective than you. The problem is you're still paying that subcontractor. So while it's an organizational firewall, there's still a financial connection. And what if the subcontractor is small and your business represents a lot of their revenue, can they really be that objective? So outsourcing subcontracting out it, it's a, it's a start. I don't, I don't know of many other means to address this, but it definitely won't work in all situations. It's it's a tricky one.
1: No, certainly, and I think it, gets, it all circles back to the fact that you know OCIs are very fact specific, and it just speaks to the importance of being vigilant and planning ahead. And you know, as you said, thoroughly going through the SOW, looking for tasks that might raise these concerns. And you know, being proactive and, and documenting and thinking through what are the potential steps you can take. And then you know, circling back to our discussion about, uh, about unequal access earlier, you know, having that OCI plan in place to recognize these, these potential scenarios and to make sure folks are aware of their responsibilities. Uh, definitely all important here.
0: Thanks, so we'll turn to our two final questions for Adele. First, from your perspective as in-house counsel, what type of OCI do you think is the trickiest to navigate and why? For me,
2: the trickiest would be the impaired objectivity OCI, the one we were just talking about. So let's talk a little bit more about it. Impaired objectivity ocis they just can't simply be mitigated by firewalling off employees because the conflicted issue is at the organizational level. One way you could potentially mitigate this type of OCI, like we talk about, is if you're a prime, giving the portion of the work triggering the OCI to a subcontractor and giving that subcontractor like a dotted line of approval straight to the government. For example, subbing out a portion of work that involves evaluating the performance of your subsidiary. So that's tricky enough. But on top of that, this mitigation strategy necessarily requires government buy-in because you're asking the government to interact directly with an entity with whom they don't have privity of contract. And the government needs to be assured that the subcontractor's objectivity is not impaired by the fact that their bills are being paid by the prime. So it can get so complicated. So that's why for me, impaired objectivity just blows the other OCIs out of the water. So uh, give me a uh, bias ground rules are unequal OCI any day, a walk in the park.
0: Uh, great. So um, you've talked a lot about uh, mitigation mechanisms for for each of the three types of, of OCIs. Um, but for a contractor that's trying to implement a comprehensive OCI compliance regime, what are some of the important you know best practices that they should be considering, such as, for example, annual training of employees?
2: I'd say if developing OCI compliance is like growing a garden, then annual training for all employees about the three types of OCI is like planting a seed. So start there with educating and communicating what to look for and where to go with OCI questions and make sure to especially educate your capture team. If you're large or getting large, you might need a commercial software product for situational awareness of your company's overall OCI posture like if one part of your organization is spending thousands of dollars in capture efforts only for the rfp to drop and your company's name is listed on that rfp as a company precluded from bidding because another part of the organization assisted in the acquisition then you need a tracking system because the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing and if you're not yet at that point at least have your capture team complete an oci vetting checklist for every opportunity Checking for the three OCI scenarios and then escalating for further review is necessary. And of course, you need someone who can perform that review, who can diagnose OCI's that arise and hopefully mitigate them.
0: Thanks. That's all great advice. And and we really appreciate you uh, coming on as a guest to our podcast, the All Things Protest podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. That's all we have for you today. Thanks for listening. The All Things Protest podcast is brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash allthingsprotest. protest